0: today. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And Greg, wait, we just skipped over the theme song. What happened? Well, this is a very special episode, which we'll get to in a second. But first, we have a little bit of business. We wanted to announce our latest live show coming up on Monday, December 9th, 2019.
1: That's right. We will be appearing at the Green Space at WNYC in New York over on Varick Street. We'll be taking the stage at 7 o'clock for a show from 7
0: to 8.30, and we'd love to have you there in the audience. And this will be a live podcast recording, so you'll want to join us for the excitement. Tickets are now on sale at thegreenspace.org. That's the green G R E E N E space dot org. Now for this week's show, we have a little treat for you. Another episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club, which is our exclusive show about New York City and the movies that we offer to those who support us on Patreon.com.
1: Patrons who already are listening to the Patreon only audio feed that we have out there. We'll have already heard this episode, which is the two of us discussing the 2002 Martin Scorsese film, The Gangs of New York. We had such a good time discussing the historical accuracy and putting it in historical context that we thought that we would take this opportunity to release it to the general feed.
0: And let's face it, Martin Scorsese is back in business. He's got a brand new film called The Irishman, which actually opens this month. It's getting all the raves. So we thought you'd enjoy revisiting another period piece from Scorsese based on the Herbert Asbury book, Gangs of New York.
1: We had such a good time comparing the movie, as you're about to hear, to the book. So we so we really hope you enjoy this. And actually, we hope that you'll want more. Uh, if you head over to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys for a small monthly donation, uh, you'll have access to many episodes of the Bowery Boys Movie Club. So far, we've done Ghostbusters, Midnight Cowboy... Uh, The the Eyes of Laura Mars, that was a fun one, (laughs) on the Town Taxi Driver, and we're about to actually hit record on another show for this week.
0: Yes, for if you do already support us on Patreon, run to your exclusive audio feed right now because there's a brand new episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club waiting for you as Tom and I explore the New York City history behind the 1987 film Moonstruck, starring Nicolas Cage, Olympia Dukakis, and in her Oscar-winning role, Share. We can't wait to
1: share it with you. And patrons, just wait because there's more. Uh, We will soon be releasing the audio from our Joe's Pub
0: live event, so you will have audio from that in your feed very shortly. Yes, audio from our Joe's Pub show and a couple additional Audio extras will be made available to you this month. On top of the normal episodes of the Bowery Boys that will also be releasing this month, we could not produce this podcast without the support of our listeners. And we greatly thank those of you who do support us. And if you don't, we hope that you'll join the gang. You can just
1: head over to Patreon, that's P A T R E O N, dot com slash Bowery Boys to join in the fun. You'll be the first to hear about upcoming live events and even get invited to New York meetup. So join us over at Patreon and thank you for your support. But
0: Tom, we have talked enough. Let's get on with the show. The Barry Boys Movie Club presents Leonardo DiCaprio, Cameron Diaz, and Daniel Day Lewis in Gangs of New York. Hi there, and welcome to the Barry Boys Movie Club. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And Tom, would you like to explain where we're recording today? We're not recording in a normal studio.
1: No, we're not. We are very, like, snug and comfy in your Brooklyn apartment. And it's a Friday afternoon, and we may have a beer or two. <laughs>
0: and I think we must, because we are talking about a really kind of one-of-a-kind movie when talking about the themes of our of this Bowery Boys movie club concept. The name of the movie is Gangs of New York, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring... A cast of major stars from the early 2000s, including Leonardo DiCaprio, Cameron Diaz, John C. Riley, Jim Broadbent, and Daniel Day-Lewis.
1: What a cast. What a film. What a long film. (laughs) Can we talk about that? This thing goes on for two hours and 50 minutes.
0: Yeah, so I, I think this is a good time to start with the question, what is your relationship with this movie? Did you see this movie when it was in the theaters in 2002? It came out in the fall of 2002.
1: You know, I am amazed to say that I did not see it when it came out in 2002. I think it's because I wasn't really around. I was just moving yeah. back from Berlin. Mm-hmm. There was like a year where, where I was gone. So I just wasn't around in 2002 when this came out. You were and saw it in the movie theater, of course, yeah. because it had Leo.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. So I was a big Leonardo DiCaprio Stan, is that what we're calling them today? I mean, i had been a huge fan since, like, the Basketball Diaries and everything. And also, this was a, a movie very up my alley. And as we'll explain, there's a context to this movie. And almost down our alley. I mean, we live <laughs> yeah, so close to the five points. To the, to the setting of this, of this movie. There's also, though, I have to say, this movie has a very indirect importance to the two of us. Because, of course, we are named... The Bowery Boys, which is the gang, one of the most menacing gangs of the Five Points area in the mid 19th century, and we took that name when we started in 2007, partially because of the halo effect that this particular movie had in terms of talking about New York City history. Like there was a big focus on 19th century working class history. And people were like, gang history in itself was like kind of hot. Absolutely. And if you think
1: that this movie came out in 2002, we started the podcast in 2007. So we were also kind of looking for a name for ourselves, you know, both living on the Lower East Side, a couple of blocks away from the Bowery. So yeah, it was kind of out there. You know, people were talking about Gangs of New York, still, the movie, Yeah, um, still when we started the show. And we thought, well, among other things, there was nice alliteration with the Bowery Boys. We were boys. We were a couple blocks from the Bowery. <laughs> we were not thinking, perhaps, about the fact that the Bowery Boys, the gang, as portrayed in the book and then the movie and in real life, were virently anti-immigrant and nativist yes. in, in nature. I mean, I guess we understood Part of that, it certainly became more apparent as we dug into the yeah, history yeah. more. I think we
0: wanted to reinvent the idea of reclaim what that meant, it. reclaim it a little bit. Yeah, and
1: there had also been the you know the, theat- the theatrical troupe and the film group, so we also knew that
0: there was this other Bowery Boys that was kind of out there, words that could be reinterpreted for a, a new generation, right? Mm, yeah. So it's this is actually a good time for us to talk about this movie because Marty. Has a new movie coming out uh, very soon called The Irishman. Of course, Leo is back on the big screens in the new Quentin Tarantino movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I do have to say that this movie, as you as you inferred, has a lot of nativism and anti-immigrant themes in it. Maybe a good movie to revisit because some of those themes are showing up on our own worlds today. Now, this is our second Martin Scorsese film on the show. The first episode was on Taxi Driver. Mm -hmm. But this is our... Wouldn't you say that this is our very first historical reenactment film? Because I guess Mm. Anti-Mame does take place through a couple decades, but doesn't really try to, like... Immerse you into certain decades And
1: the- on the town kind of like It recreates a sort of Vision of New York that probably didn't exist So I guess it depends on how yeah. you define that. This is a period piece In yes. fact I
0: would say how would you describe it Further having kind of Looked at the book so it's This is based on or maybe Inspired by the Herbert Asbury book Gangs of New York Which was written in 1927
1: Yeah so it came out in 27 Asbury was a journalist. He had written a couple other books. He, In his career, you know, he covered a lot of crime and wrote not just about New York City's underworld, but he also wrote about Chicago and other cities. He had come from the Midwest, came from Missouri, and was, oh, yeah. yeah, his great-great-uncle. Now, I'm not looking at my notes here, so I might be off here, but I think his great-great-uncle was actually Asbury of Methodism fame. Um, the very first bishop ever anointed in the United States wow. in the Methodist church. So he comes from this very religious Methodist upbringing. Any Methodists out there are familiar with the name Asbury. I'm not even Methodist, but I went to a Camp Asbury as a child, oh. which was a Methodist summer camp. As opposed I to... I
0: hated a- it. <laughs> but as opposed to Asbury Park in New Jersey. I don't... Asbury
1: Park, you know, is next to Ocean Grove, which is a, which was a Methodist campground.
0: I would call this movie a historical pastiche, because something to keep in mind, and and I'm sure that when you first watched this movie, you were perhaps overwhelmed by the imagery which was for its time when it came out in 2002 this movie was acclaimed for its historical accuracy mm-hmm. and being a Scorsese of production you know it was lavish it was a huge budgeted film and the set they, that they made in, in Rome, Italy like it's extraordinary because you know that they took these original illustrations of Five Points and and held them up to each other and it really has a beautiful replication of what these original places might have looked like
1: Yeah, I actually remember, and we're we're talking, it's amazing to think that this movie came out almost 20 years ago, but I remember people, that was like a thing in the press, right? People talked about how much money was spent recreating Five Points, Mm -hmm. and how much cash was just poured into (laughs) these sets. It seemed like no expense was spared, and that was really unusual. They spent like $100 million on this movie. As you said, most of it recreated in Rome. So yes, watching it, you you can't help but be taken by how lavish and you know the spectacle is. In a way that, say, Taxi Driver was verite, you oh, know? Yeah. Oh, I mean, very te Oh very much. Yeah, that was like you were in the backseat of a car driving around town, and this is like this over the top Italian American you know <laughs> joint production <laughs> mm-hmm. that's just beautiful. So there's that. The jaw is dropped for that reason. The jaw is also dropped because they took such liberties with history. Okay, yeah. So
0: that's the amazing thing is that it's both it's both historically accurate and then like widely ch- like changed. Because let's uh, like, I guess we should be clear. Gangs of New York is more of like an anthology. It's it's a series of tales that are kind of like stitched together. The book. The book. Mm-hmm. So you, the ob- book
1: is a chronicle or just yeah right. It's a compendium. Of people from the underworld over many many decades, yeah, basically pre-mafioso New York, like anybody who was breaking the law, the most notorious criminals and gang leaders are all you know sort of mm-hmm. profiled in in Asbury's book. So they really had to do a lot of work to turn that book or mm-hmm. like themes from that book. Into a movie that made sense with central characters,
0: and it had to. They had to place a completely fictional plot within all of these like true stories. But as a result of that, they often take a lot of true events and change them. They take a lot of things out of time and just squeeze them together for the purpose of this uh, for this movie. All I'll say is that at the time, its historical accuracy was was really really praised. But in the Intervening years, we now live in a. There's it there was very little or just sort of minor CGI work mm-hmm. in this movie, but now we live in a world where movies are almost like you know spun out of nothing because of computer animation, and you can do a lot of things that are even more historically accurate today. So that's just something to keep in mind.
1: And I think that's a good distinction. I think that really the praise has been heaped upon the accuracy of the buildings, like of the set construction, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The fact that they went to this expense to recreate the actual streets that formed the Five Points. And then at various moments in the film, it looks like you're looking at that famous painting by George Catlin from the 1850s called Five Points. It basically depicts that intersection in Paradise Square, the streets packed with people and mayhem, but you see that imagery over and over. And so I think that is notable. Like they they recreated a historical place and also this
0: painting. And I would say that that is still right now to this day, having just watched it, still the best aspect of the movie. I think there are other historical depictions, however, that have. Poorly dated, and we'll get to those in a second. <laughs> now, just a, a really quick on the the background of this. It was released in two thousand two, filmed from the summer of two thousand to the spring of two thousand one. Although they did pickups for many many months afterwards. This was a Miramax production, so of course the producers are Bob and Harvey Weinstein. Uh, Although there were many disagreements between the producers and Scorsese, which may have maybe affected the quality of the film a little bit.
1: I bet there was like a lot of wine and like cigars, you know, being chomped while while they were disagreeing about things.
0: (laughs) Well, we hope it didn't didn't raise to more than a hastily pointed cigar. Um, But there are actually two contexts that are very important to think about when watching this movie as you go in. The first one of course, is 9-11, September 11th. In fact, because... You say that, I'm sorry, it wrapped shooting in, 2000, in the summer of 2001? In, in the spring of 2001. It was supposed to be released in the winter of uh, 2001 for that kind of Oscar season or whatever, and they put it off for a year because, as we'll talk about, there's a, a couple very pointed things that would be maybe a little disturbing to see you know, yeah, it, like in, in, in that light. Like an entire neighborhood being basically destroyed. Yeah, in downtown Manhattan, right. Now there are, there's the other context is really what was happening in Hollywood and there were two movies I just want to mention. 1997, the release of Titanic and 2001, that very, that very winter, actually, was the release of lord of the rings Mm. so those are the two biggest kind of cultural film phenomenons of that period and you see a little bit of that maybe like not so well stitched into the story a little dash Mm -hmm. of a a rose and jack's love romantic Mm storyline and then those battle sequences are sort of like cut or edited in such a way that they were also very uh, Lord of the Rings. In fact, this movie, when this movie did come out, it was at the same theaters as the Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. So there were a lot of movies with like major battle scenes during this period with two sides clashing towards each other.
1: Yeah, a lot of testosterone, a lot of men like <laughs> going, Roar! And then like, you know, they would do that sort of Matrixy speed-up effect with the camera. So oh, I don't yeah. know when The Matrix came out in this whole... Yeah, just, oh, that's true. That's
0: that's another good uh, comparison. It came out just a few years before as well. So
1: you'd have that kind of like sudden, like a rush of the camera. So it'd go really fast and then kind of like frozen in space as the camera zooms mm-hmm. around. You know, that trick that was like... Everybody. Once we realized we could do that as movie makers...
0: like <laughs> We just did it all we, the time. <laughs> we couldn't stop
1: doing that. And people would freeze in mid-air as you swooped around. Battle scenes in this. We were zooming around people on the five points. And also, like, unfortunate guitar rock in okay, the background. Yes. Can okay, we talk I've, about that? I have a really
0: huge beef with the music in this. Because, interestingly, the score is done by Howard Shore, who did the score for Lord of the Rings but hmm. it was almost like he was like well this needs to be like Americana and also because U2 is is on the soundtrack with the with the song at the end it's almost like he had to put some kind of i I just think really ill conceived kind of rock or, or country like, theme or
1: like lute music or Irish d- ditties that are happening in inside bars and whatever so you either have kind of like folk music or you have this I don't even know how to classify that. Yeah, yeah it's like it's like angry
0: guitar music, <laughs> you know? I just I'm so repelled by that. It stuff. doesn't that has really not dated very well. Would you like to know how this did at the box office? <laughs>
1: I think, if I do recall, I mean, even without my attendance in a theater, yeah. I, I think it was a smash.
0: Um, you know, it was it was a mild, I would say a minor hit. Uh, made $77 million, which I can't imagine actually that, that they made their money back on that. But that's pretty good for, a, if you think about a movie of this, like a historical epic from this period, although it did have the biggest... Movie star in America So who knows if that's a, a good or bad The number one movie of the year By the way, in the, in, in 2002 Was Spider-Man With Leonardo DiCaprio's good friend Tobey Maguire As Spider-Man, <laughs> FYI I did see that in the movie theater <laughs> Now, the Oscars, Tom
1: Oh, it was nominated for like a dozen ten. awards Ten, it, yeah.
0: it was nominated for ten Academy Awards Including that... Best Picture, Best Director And Best Actor for Daniel Day-Lewis Oh, he should have gone. that, how many did it win? Zero and I'll tell you why. Well, first of all, before I tell you why, I want to... Also, Even
1: Daniel didn't win his?
0: Okay, the here's what happened that year. This little movie called Chicago came oh, out.
1: now and, we saw that at the Ziegfeld. <laughs>
0: yeah, yes, we did. And Chicago swept the Academy Awards. And Chicago was also a period piece in the 1920s, although, you know, a very stark different kinds of, of art direction, but swept many of the categories. Daniel Day-Lewis lost to Adrian Brody in The Pianist, and Scorsese lost Best Director to Roman Polanski. And then the final note, I will say, is it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay.
1: Now, see, that is interesting, because that basically tells you everything you need to know about how uh, strictly this adhered to Asbury's book. I mean, if this wasn't even considered an adapted screenplay, if this wasn't like an adapted work... No, this was completely invented. I mean, we both have our copies of Gangs of New York. the mm-hmm. book. um here's mine. I see yours over there,
0: and I also have Tyler's uh, Tyler uh and Amber's, uh five points out. I was just sort of flipping through it as I was watching the movie, as one does
1: the screenwriters they had their work cut out for them. they basically if we're if we can just talk about the plot for a second yeah in
0: fact yeah let's let's in fact go into a synopsis if you want to.
1: <laughs> the story basically concerns. It concerns the five points from the 1840s to the 1860s, and a young man who we call Amsterdam, the son of the leader of a former gang, the Dead Rabbits, watch his father, in the leader of that gang, die in battle at the, at the hands of the leader of the other nativist gang, which is basically the Bowery Boys. Mm-hmm. That would be Bill the Butcher. We see the father die. And then 16 years later, after the boy has gone off to an orphanage at Blackwell's Island, he comes back. And then the whole movie concerns him basically falling into the good graces and becoming the apprentice to Bill the Butcher, basically ingratiating himself.
0: To, kill, to essentially kill him.
1: Although being conflicted because he also admires him at the same time. And kind of going up through the ranks of this nativist gang and learning the tricks from Bill the Butcher. And then, yes, at the moment when he can kill this man, the assassin of his father, he goes for it, isn't able to pull it off. Bill wounds him superficially. He cuts his face so that he will be marked for life. A freak worthy only of Barnum's downtown museum. And Leonardo is then,
0: you know, his face is bruised and he's walking around. Uh, the final third of the movie is basically the two of them on warring sides. And so mm-hmm. there's a kind of a reprise, which we'll get to that. Oh, because he brings the, fr-
1: the the dead rabbits back from the dead.
0: Yeah, they're basically like they're, there's basically a rematch. The The ending of the movie resembles the first part of the movie, which let's talk about the first part of the movie right now.
1: And and the rematch happens the same day what a coincidence as the first day of the, the draft riots. Yeah.
0: So of eighteen sixty b- and by the way, before we jump in- into this, it's very key distinction. We have Amsterdam Vallon mm-hmm. on one side, and you said Bill the Butcher. Mm-hmm. Right? Now here's the interesting thing. William the Butcher, Poole, mm-hmm. was in fact the leader of the Bowery Boys, was a historical figure, and in fact is one of the most kind of omnipresent individuals in the book *Gangs of new york
1: that's right he has a, there's an entire chapter called what is it the death of Bi- uh, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, bill the butcher Who, his name has been changed a little
0: his name da- his name in the film is bill cutting oh did i say bill pool in my little no synopsis? You, you said bill the butcher oh, and that's okay. because that is technically right because he is in fact a butcher and because of course he's wielding a butcher's knife and killing right. people and doing all crazy things with it but in fact he is actually a different character so that they can kind of like change it up a little bit. So in
1: real life, this character's name was Bill Poole. Bill Poole. Or Bill Mm -hmm. the Butcher Poole. P-O-O-L-E. And in the movie, his character is Bill Cutting. Mm -hmm. Cutting is a cute name to give to a butcher, (laughs) of course.
0: The opening scene here, the opening 15 minutes here, is technically based on a real-life infamous battle between the Dead Rabbits and the Bowery Boys. Okay, this was a thing that happened in real life. It happened in 1857. Oh, you're talking about the the Dead Rabbits Riot? The Dead Rabbits Riot. In the movie, it is set in 1846 Mm -hmm. because it will specifically age a particular character right in time for the draft riots that is the only reason they said it on this date so we begin it seems as if we're in some sort of a cave of some kind we're introduced to the preacher and to young Amsterdam the priest the priest sorry the priest yeah I um, don't think he's really a priest uh, um, um loosely a loose a little priest have a little priest have a little priest <laughs> so there
1: is some Sweeney Todd in this, which we'll <laughs> get okay. into
0: so they're actually getting ready to go into this battle and what happens is all these people start collecting. They're they're getting the gang together. And what many of these characters are, they're actually directly or indirectly based on characters that are in the book Gangs of New York. And there's one person that I just want to point out right now because you see her at the beginning and you see her a little bit at the end. And that is Hellcat Maggie.
1: I am so – how – what – what minute are we at? I can't believe it took us this long to get to Hellcat Maggie. He
0: was, uh, you know, the movie does not have enough of her in it, frankly. N- no. But she actually, has a real yeah.
1: bite to her. <laughs> the, the historical character of Hellcat Maggie had allegedly... Yeah, she, Greg, um, Greg is opening up his copy
0: of Gangs of New York. The dead rabbits during the early 40s commanded the allegiance of the most noted of the female battlers an angler vixen known as Hellcat Maggie, who fought alongside the gang chieftains in many of the great battles with the Bowery gangs. She is said to have filed her teeth to points while on her fingers she wore long artificial nails constructed of brass. And she also... Didn't she uh, bite people's ears off? She cuts... Yeah, she bites or cuts people's ears off and she stores them in a jar. Right. And so
1: that (laughs) is recreated at one point. They're in a... Some kind of a saloon and you see Maggie saunter up to the bar and she plucks another ear into like a jar (laughs) full of formaldehyde or something So you really have to know what that is
0: Well, that's that is like a real nod to people who are big fans because she is a very Precisely drawn I would say, of, of, and perhaps the most so, of any of the characters here, without too much embellishment. Well, anyway, so they, so the the dead rabbits get, gather here. The doors fly open, and you see this beautiful five point set for the very first time, and you realize that what where they're at, and where a lot of the action of this film will be taking place in, is the old brewery.
1: Yeah, and we just talked about this brewery in our episode on the tombs. I feel like we we kind of talk about many of these things. (laughs) All uh, over the... In all of the shows, yes. In all of the shows. We just sort of mentioned it in the in the trash show as well, because, you know, industry had been forced to move up here to be near Collect Pond. So one of those things that was moved up here was this old brewery. Of course, once the pond was drained, it was filled in, and the, the earth wasn't totally settled, and the structures that were built atop that new landfill started to shift. The foundation shifted. People fled because their houses were falling over, and the People who took their places, uh, the tenants who set up residence there, were the city's most recent arrivals, most of them being Irish uh, immigrants who were just arriving in the city at the
0: same time. Right. So during this period, Five Points was very associated with the Irish who had just arrived into New York City. And they are clashing... Out in front of, here in Paradise Square, which is the other name for Five Points, or actually the name specifically of the kind of patch of land. In the movie, there's like some kind of a monument or something in the middle of the square, isn't there?
1: Yeah, so there's Paradise Square that's just off of the Five Points intersection. So Mm -hmm. you see
0: both of that. I mean, it's very realistically done. Yeah. So anyway, so they are meeting up with Bill cutting and the bowery boys and in his language uh, you can already tell that they're like anti-irish like go back to your country you're not a native american a native american in terms of like a native who's lived here for you know mm-hmm. a few decades so what ends up happening is a massive clash a huge violent very violent staged Clash here. That's almost like 10 minutes long, or at least it feels like it like it is. Yeah, and this is during the winter, this is shot in the way that we were just talking
1: about. The guitars are angry, you know, the camera is swooping. It's snowy outside, and so the snow is soon like totally soiled with blood. You know, it's just like a massive bloody battlefield. (laughs) Yes. Except you're in the middle of, you know, five points.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And what's really cool, actually, before we jump into the battle or actually kind of move past the battle, is that there's a there's this moment where all the gang names are called out, the Plug Uglies. We could have called our podcast the Plug Uglies, Tom, instead of the Bowery Boys. There was the Shirt tails, the Chichesters, the Forty Thieves. And so they are all on the side of the Dead Rabbits.
1: Yes, and you see Leonardo DiCaprio's character, the young Amsterdam. At this point, he's, he's just a, a boy, like six or eight years old or something, watching his father fight. And he watches his father go down at the hands of Bill the Butcher, who actually kills his father, the priest, right in front of his son. And at that moment, Bill declares right then and there in Paradise Square that the dead rabbits are, for from this moment on, outlawed.
0: Ears and noses will be the trophies of the day.
1: But no hand shall touch him. No hand shall touch him. He'll cross over whole. And that's the end of that scene. The camera pans back and you you see this image of New York in 1846. Uh, you see the avenues sort of going up, you know, maybe a mile or two, and then sort of stopping. Smokestacks billowing.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful scene. Yeah, yeah, and that's. It's actually. It took my breath away for a second to see that. Like, oh my, I can't believe I'm seeing this in a movie. There is one thing though that happens right before that that is very pivotal, and that is little Amsterdam is escapes because there. The he wants. He's just trying to run away. He's taken his father's switchblade. Right? That's right. And goes and buries it, but then... they Back in
1: the old brewery.
0: Back in the... Oh, back in the brewery. So it's buried somewhere in the brewery, this very special switchblade. But they capture him, and they cart him off to Blackwell's Island. That's right. Now, Bill the Butcher, in fact, has saved
1: the life of this little boy and says, like, give him to the law. Oh, as, a, as opposed to being killed, yeah. Right, and maybe he'll grow up and have an ed- give him an education.
0: We kind of flash forward... Sixteen years later, and we see Leo being check. Or I'm sorry, Amsterdam, uh <laughs> I know. who is now call him Leonardo <laughs> who is Leo? now Leo. In you know now he is he is played Leonardo by Leo. played yeah. by Leo are getting out of the Blackwell's Island facility. But here's the. Did you did you notice this weird detail? First of all, they keep calling it the Hellgate. Yes, um, the
1: Hellgate House of Reform.
0: Yeah, so that's never what it was called ever. Um, I ch- I checked all over the place because I was like, I think they just wanted to say Hellgate.
1: Yeah, I mean Hellgate
0: fits kind of the the mood, you and know, it, that it, they were looking for. And here. it is, it's near Hellgate. It's, it's not near, so far. It, it's not so far. Hellgate being that like churning body of water, kind of off of. Blackwell's Island but more the, <laughs> accurately they could have called it
1: the not so far from Hellgate House of Reform <laughs> I guess
0: that's true interestingly underneath it it actually says did you notice this it says New York City with the uh C in city lowercase because back in the day whenever they refer to the city of New York it was it was more like the state like it's the city oh, yeah. of the state does that make any sense Well, because
1: the city it wasn't called New York City there was, it was called yeah. New York yeah Oh, that's interesting. I I did not notice that detail. Good eye! (laughs) I did notice that, so he's getting checked out, and, you know, the priest hands him a Bible, and he walks across a bridge. Now, I don't know which bridge he was taking, but he walks across a bridge to leave Blackwell's Island and throws it into the river. Oh, yeah.
0: Very dramatic he, he, gesture. So what we get now is a, a sort of a, a series of vignettes from his perspective of the city. Of And so there's a lot of history actually condensed.
1: So he's been sort of locked up in this reform school for 16 years. So yeah, it's kind of like in voiceover, Leo is kind of telling us what has changed and what's going on in New York City. He's our, he's our guide yes. to
0: New York in 1862. So they're celebrating, well, some are celebrating the Emancipation Proclamation, the freeing of the slaves. But of course, in the voiceover and on the street, you see a lot of anti-Lincoln people. And you, you realize very quickly that a lot of New Yorkers, as was the case, were actually very anti-Union. We even see some signs, I believe it's in this scene or, or later, of like people wanting to secede from the Union. Yeah, and Bill the Butcher is right there at the forefront. Then we get a, sh- a short scene at the piers, at mm-hmm. the docks. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we see the, f- the first of many scenes of Irish coming off the boats. And they're
1: being handed, did you get this? They're being handed a hot dog. Uh, because they're starving, and
0: a little pamphlet, a little uh, flyer that says, Vote Tammany. Oh, and did you see who was handing uh, that little card to people? It wasn't who we will come to realize is actually Boss Tweed, played by Jim Broadbent.
1: Well, it cuts to, right then, the inside of Tammany Hall, and we see Boss Tweed, Um, and we're introduced to the fact that he is portrayed here as, yes, kind of a savvy politician, but also kind of a Bumbling character,
0: I. He's it's not the it's not the portrayal of Boss Tweed that I know of from from reading about him, but not so off. And he does look like William Marcy Tweed. Mm-hmm. He's got a lot of birds.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a whole bird thing going on. You you feel like he's like living inside an aviary.
0: What happens through the movie? A kind of subplot. He's trying to get Bill kind of on board for his own objectives. Bill the Butcher. Yeah. But of course Bill doesn't want to because Boss Tweed wants to he sees those Irish people and he sees votes and he sees money and he sees power. But Bill is a bigot. Bill is not going to do anything to help any Irish people. So what happens through the movie is that these these two kind of chafe against each other but initially Boss Tweed wants to work with him.
1: Well, they do. I mean, they spend half or more of the movie, you know, Boss Tweed and Bill the Butcher and his Bowery Boys are forever in the same scenes and you see that they're working out throughout this whole movie. They're working out deals behind the scenes. Bill the Butcher is like in Tammany Hall working out deals with Boss Tweed. Boss Tweed is meanwhile like hanging out with Bill the Butcher in mm-hmm. unsavory places. I mean, they are both profiting in their own ways off of each other's power. Yes. And that that seems very real realistic. It does, yeah. Although it is a little confusing because Tweed, the real Tweed you know, I think was pretty savvy in embracing the immigrants who were arriving mm-hmm. pretty much right away, right? He he was realizing that these people, once they could vote, were able to, uh, if he could get them jobs, they could get him votes, as we've talked about, well, in, in that tune yeah. show.
0: So Amsterdam is wandering around and, uh, some more and meets eventually befriends a character named Johnny Sirocco, And did you see who the actor was playing Johnny Sirocco? Who was that? Henry Thomas, best known for E.T. the Extraterrestrial.
1: No! (laughs) Yes. He was the little boy? Yeah, he was Elliot. Yeah, isn't that great?
0: This is a very different kind of role. Well, anyway, Johnny recognizes... Amsterdam, they have a bit of a fight, but finally, kind of c- convinced that they're all on the same side. So then he gives them a little tour of Five Points and what the kind of the action is, the gang action of that particular area. He runs down the names of different gangs, the the Nightwalkers on Ragpicker's Row. Mm. I thought of that during our for, because of our recent trash show and just all little anecdotes about l- the little 40 thieves what's been going on with Hellcat Maggie and uh, but bu- finally it just essentially says the dead rabbits are outlaws. Right.
1: And b- basically no longer exist. Everybody has moved over everybody from the dead rabbits has moved over in support of Bill the Butcher. Now again, this is not historically accurate. So <laughs> no. now we have lo- we have left reality And we're in this other... Kind of a history-adjacent pocket. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Also, a little bit confusing is that they go back to the old brewery, and it has been transformed into a mission, right? Because the reformers, that's another major plot point here, the reformers have shown up in the meantime, and they are planning on cleaning up, trying to clean up the entire neighborhood. and. Throughout the movie, we see reformers, we see well-intentioned society folk visiting the Five Points. Uh, This is all very well and good, but in reality, the old brewery had been demolished in 1852. So this... Scene takes place ten years after that building had actually been demolished.
0: And by the way, this building doesn't even look like a real building. Like once you're inside of it, I mean, it kind of. I mean, I don't mean to bring up Lord of the Rings again, but it looked like like underground caves, tunnels that dwarves would, you know, like would would have lived in. They're massive. It's like a
1: labyrinth down yeah. <laughs> there. And the, in the movie, they depict underground tunnels where all kinds of people are living, and actually like walking around like c- cavemen and women, you know, with torches. And such. Yeah, that was not I don't believe the case (laughs) inside. It it was also, you know, the entire street scene, if we can just talk about that for a second, is complete mayhem. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a major point in this whole movie is that Scorsese has like created a street packed with prostitutes, people punching each other, people overturning carts, men tripping downtown, uptown visitors, you Mm -hmm. know, like everybody's getting mugged or punched in the face at all, <laughs> all the time. times. Yes. And that sits a little uneasy with me too, because that has been greatly exaggerated in the what? 175 years. Yeah. Well, years thanks, to,
0: thanks to the book. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to the book.
1: Exactly. Um, and more recent scholarship has actually proven that the five points was likely, you know, a neighborhood filled with people who were working jobs. They were just, poor, Mm -hmm. they were feeding themselves, and, you know, like, the crime that's depicted here is highly... Highly exaggerated. <laughs> the streets were not just like a mecca of criminals, you know, slugging each other in the faces 24 hours a day.
0: Although maybe you would have stumbled into, say, a pickpocket, as they do here. And we, er, we get the first introduction of a character named Jenny Everdeen, who is kind of like a resourceful woman who is always committing crimes. And that's played by Cameron Diaz. And we'll get to her story a little bit later. Now, the next scene is... It's pretty extraordinary, I have to say, is a notable one, Um, and that's the fire.
1: Yes, we actually see a house on fire, and not one, but two fire departments pull up, and so we're introduced to the fact that fire departments, as we've talked about on the podcast, fire departments were being run by or manned by competing gangs. Uh, They were social clubs, and they were really fighting each other, sometimes in the streets, in order to be the first ones to put the fire out.
0: Sometimes as depicted in the movie, leaving the the burning building ablaze while they're having these fist fights on the street. Now there is uh, another element that th- that keeps getting brought up in this movie that it's incorrect or is out of time, and that is the idea that New York had two separate police departments. It's It certainly did. At, at one point in its existence in the 1850s, it had a metropolitan police force and a municipal police force. In and fact, the, at
1: the time of the Dead Rabbits Riot in
0: 1857, that was the case. Mm-hmm. But here by 1862, there was just one.
1: There's a quick scene that takes place on a ship that night when Bill, the butcher basically tells the boys, Hey, there's going to be, there's a Portuguese ship that's docked out, uh, under quarantine, go rob it. So they go rob this ship early in the morning, they get there. But just, um, when the watchman catches them on the ship is about to like take action. He's stabbed in the back by the gang. Um, and Amsterdam Leo's character gets the idea of throwing his body overboard and then selling it to medical students who are in desperate need of bodies for oh, research.
0: The ghoul gang slaughters, right? So there's a newspaper that comes out, and they the have police like, gazette. The police gazette. It makes the front page, and I mean, this kind of disreputable selling of cadavers was was actually done in New York. I'm not sure if it was constantly or regularly done in New York in the 1850s, but you know, certainly earlier in the century.
1: And that is something I'm actually going to be talking about in the next show um, on medicine in early in the early nineteenth century, was that yeah there was
0: a real price a need to work on human bodies. We, I mean, we also find out uh, during the scene where they they have all their stolen goods and the money that uh, poli- a corrupt police officer comes in, Happy Jack Mulroney. He comes in and basically takes some of it. I mean, like he's on the take too. He, they, the the police in this film are just as criminal as everybody else.
1: That's right. We're also introduced the next day to the fact that. There's talk of the draft coming, you know, and there's also talk of the fact that if you have $300, you can buy your way out of the draft. So they're kind of setting up this tension that's simmering as you see recruiters in the streets down around the five points start talking to people, trying to get them to sign up now we are back on the street with Jenny Everdeen. Yes. With a character played by Cameron Diaz. That fabulous pickpocket.
0: (laughs) And there's this like meat cute comedy scene involving her, you know, like they run into each other and they pat each other down. They're like, "Uh, you didn't steal anything. But actually, she does end up stealing his St. Anthony medal, which of course his father had given him. So he chases after her. She boards an omnibus. A horse-drawn omnibus that is
1: That is, in fact, the Madison Avenue Broadway omnibus. I don't know if you noticed that. I couldn't really make sense of that name, and we should look into that to see Mm -hmm. if that existed. And she's dressed on the omnibus like a a fancy woman, (laughs) and she's sitting there, and she basically pulls a routine on a gentleman sitting next to her who's trying (laughs) to touch her leg, and she kind of, like, reaches back a little bit. And Leo's watching the whole thing, and he sees her with some amusement, kind of rifle through this gentleman's things and, like, steal his locket, get, get a yes. whole, like, mm-hmm. armful of, <laughs> of jewelry and such, and then have to get off the omnibus.
0: It's like a whole Zales showroom right here. Yeah. He follows her to a
1: mansion... And in sort of like the, the back hallway, she secretly changes into a maid's outfit. And then she heads inside through the kitchen and heads up the stairs as if she works there. And he, in a voiceover, explains that Jenny is not just what he calls a bludget, which is a girl pickpocket, but she's also a turtle dove, which is <laughs> one who dresses like a maid, but will, will enter your house and rob you blind, it takes a lot of sand to be a turtle dove, <laughs> he says. I love the use of the word sand is in this. It's like several times. Oh, You've there... got a lot of sand. <laughs> she Sorry. goes into a Victorian mansion, and you know, it's the 1860s. It didn't look like an 1860s house to me, if you think of what the fancy families. And by the way, in the 1860s, yes. they were in Midtown, they weren't really up next to Central Park. But anyway, <laughs> there she is, and she goes in, and the family is sitting down. Now, we see some rich families. I I couldn't tell, was this supposed to be the skirmerhorns? Because they're, they're... Well, we get, we're get we going to see them in a minute,
0: so... And, maybe and, it's and, another family. Yeah.
1: But she has gone in, ostensibly she's robbed them of jewelry, and she's sneaking out, and then they have this kind of like weird altercation, With lovey Amsterdam, thing. right?
0: Amsterdam catches her, and they have a back alley kind of a it's it's flirtation but also like he's like ripping he's trying to get his his necklace back and they hate each other but they kind of like each other you know where it's going Scorsese makes a i think a better movie about New York City just a few years before this the age of innocence which is about this very world you know because mm-hmm. it's based on Edith Wharton and it's the sort of 5th Avenue the lives of the Fifth Avenue wealthy. So, do we know that this is supposed to be Fifth Avenue? Because I don't, if, we don't if, really know. Actually, if the omnibus
1: said Madison, the Madison Avenue, you know, maybe it was. I don't know. Maybe but when we saw those trees, maybe that was facing another little park.
0: Maybe it was Jones Wood. Maybe oh. let's just let's let's give the film the benefit of the doubt. That, yeah. that that it was Jones Wood, and because there were mansions. In fact, the Skirmerhorns had a house. Off of Jones Wood, which was this, this was the land that almost became Central Park. It was kind of the area kind of north of the 59th Street Bridge. Jones Wood was a was sort of like an unofficial park, and the Skirmerhorns and many rich families did have houses around there. So, why don't we go with the fact that it's Jones Wood? Uh, I'm so I'm so sold.
1: because I'm sold. at first I was thinking, could it be Madison Square Park? Um, oh but sure, it's, but it's too small. I mean, it seems you know like there are blocks and blocks and blocks in <laughs> Madison Square Park, but yeah.
0: quite small. By the way, since since he uttered the word skirmerhorn, horn, we do get the, in the next scene, uh, a scene in Five Points of some slum tourism mm-hmm. as they as they called it, with a, a group of dignitaries um, taking a tour, and they even meet Bill the butcher, who but- introduces himself as William Cutting,
1: and he he sort of flatters them by identifying them all to their faces you know mm-hmm. he knows who they are and old mr skirmerhorn walks away saying i'm flattered i can't believe that that man knew who i was
0: but, but even i think more interestingly than the skirmerhorns here which were kind of depicted as a bunch of fops you actually had a pretty good looking uh horace greeley
1: oh yeah 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 and he shows up later actually during the draft riots in the meantime, we see that Bill has become kind of a mentor to Amsterdam. So Leonardo's kind of like learning the ropes. You know, mm-hmm. there's some kind of montage action here. Leo's, his rank is rising within the the Bowery boys or the nativists. Teaches him how to stab and attack using the body of a pig. Yeah. Because he is, after all, a butcher. <laughs> um, there is a funny moment. Well, funny. I guess it's dark humor uh, where uh, boss tweed says to bill the butcher you know everybody's bothering me about crime and the five points we have to look like we're doing something how about a hanging and bill the butcher says okay how many and boss tweed says uh, three or four and bill says which one three or four <laughs> and four. he says four <laughs> and then it cuts to four nooses lined up yeah and these four sad sack prisoners you know who have just been rounded up and are being greeted by bill the butcher who is sending them to the gallows yeah it's 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 very natural
0: they're just like well i mean my time's come interestingly there actually were not outdoor public executions in Mm. new york by this time but they were still going on Inside the tombs, which I mean, like, you know, a little bit of the nerd in me just wanted a little glimpse of the tombs over in the corner. They never really show it, but they did do public hangings at the tombs. So, I mean, this is it's adjacent, this truth adjacent. That night,
1: there's also a dance. It's the first annual mission dance. And Leo says, hangings in the morning, dancing in the evenings. And did you see actually Tammany has sent through a street cleaner? Speaking of trash oh, yeah. and street cleaning. Mm-hmm. A a cleaner, something is going by a giant tank that on the side of it, it's painted Anti-Pestilence Cholera-Thwarting Solution Public Service of Tammany. (laughs) It's a wagon that's being sort of like led around Five Points and Hosing down the streets. And inside, you see how the mission has actually, they've taken over, ostensibly, the old brewery. So you see how they've kind of changed it. And they've made it, this evening, they've set up a dance. And so there's... There's a love scene where basically Jenny chooses to dance with Amsterdam, with Leo's character. Did you notice in that dance scene that they are holding, this seems very dangerous to me, they were holding candles. All the couples were oh, yeah, dancing yes, with candles. Yes. And they're kind of like, because of the inside of the old brewery, it's like they're, they're waltzing back and forth on these balconies. I mean, the whole thing is very
0: <laughs> dangerous. The whole thing was just going to go up in smoke. It's a um, fire hazard. So um, they have a they have a kind of romantic interlude, but she uh, but Amsterdam discovers that Jenny has a history with Bill and he, he just begins to distrust her. We have a quick scene that depicts some pugilism a boxing match, and it, it kind of goes by pretty quickly, but it, what essentially happens is it's actually illegal, uh, and this 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 is factually based, it was illegal to have boxing matches in bars, which is where they mostly have them, so to get around that, they would go to, to islands, many islands in the New York Harbor. In this, it looks like they're on some kind of a barge, Or something?
1: Well, yeah, I mean first first they're in the in the five points and it gets raided by the police, and Bill the butcher looks at boss Tweed, who is of course there too, and says, Why are we getting raided? We paid off the police. And Tweed says back to him, We paid off the municipal police, but this is the Metropolitan Police. According to the movie, it's Leo, aka Amsterdam who comes up with the idea of holding this match (laughs) outside the city limits, which is floating on a barge.
0: We're going to jump over it really quick, quickly, but there is this magnificent kind of single continuous cut scene of Irish immigrants coming off a boat, basically signing up for war and then loading up onto a boat that's heading towards the battle lines, signing up for the Union Army and going down to the battle lines. And then, of course, then coffins being taken out of that boat. So there's a sort of like morbid circle of life thing that's happening here
1: yeah it and even one of the recruiters who's at the table is saying to the immigrants as they get off the boat says to him this document makes you a citizen that document makes you a private in the union army now go fight for your country (laughs) it's very dark yeah so and and one of them says to the other where are you going and he says i heard tennessee and he says where's that that's
0: a was a real situation in the 1860s this uh, cuts to a most remarkable night at the theater it's <laughs> uncle tom's cabin
1: the rowdiest production of uncle tom's cabin you've ever seen
0: well the the sort of backdrop on this which is sort of interesting so of course this was one of the most significant books of the 19th century when the book came out, it created you know this was before like licensing and everything it created. there was like a million different play versions that came out and so by the eight- well, a lot of people couldn 't read yeah, yeah. that 's true it could that was the best way to share the story. but what happened is by the eighteen sixties especially here as we see, the kind of like nuanced themes if if, in fact, that book has nuance. Anyway, the themes of that book kind of like fade away, and it turns into what's essentially just a minstrel show. And a way for the audience here is to chide Lincoln and to make fun of him and to make fun of the issues of the play.
1: Even if that wasn't the intention, because it seems that this, this production is being presented by the same people who are behind the missionary, mm-hmm. work, yeah. behind the mission. So there seem to be abolitionist intentions behind the production, although it is just such a weird spectacle. They have Abraham Lincoln floating this this guy playing <laughs> yeah. Abraham Lincoln floating up in space. Remember the movie with Meryl Streep playing the opera singer. Oh, uh, Florence uh, uh, Foster For- Jenkins? Yes, Florence Foster Jenkins in the opening scenes of that where she's into these kinds of <laughs> tableau vivants. So it's kind of this like... If Florence
0: Foster Jenkins floated into this scene, it, I would not have been surprised. <laughs> it's the same thing, yeah. So the whole thing is rather
1: odd, but while Lincoln is floating like 30 feet in the air throughout <laughs> this entire thing, there's an assassination attempt Against Bill the Butcher and Leonardo DiCaprio
0: spots it and saves Bill's life yes for this moment we believe that now this relationship between Amsterdam and Bill has kind of gone to the next level like now he's truly a confidant and we we go to a bar to a brothel actually um, where they're all hanging out and I just there's one particular interesting historical detail to this we see a gentleman tap dancing. So tap dancing is said to have actually originated in Five Points. The mixture of Irish dancing and African dancing sort of mixes here. And they trace the roots of tap dancing. So, I mean, Mm. of course, Bill says something derogatory about it. But it is cool they make a little nod to this uh, dance history.
1: Of course, Bill says something derogatory and racist. And it's strange because Daniel Day-Lewis's character, like... He's growing on you, you know, and you're also conflicted, yeah, yes, much as true. Amsterdam is conflicted, because there is something like you—you you start to sort of like him, and then he says something horribly nativist and and racist, <laughs> and
0: you're like, "Oh my god, I, yeah, I've no—he's he's
1: despicable, t- awful, right? Yeah, and he keeps like bludgeoning people."
0: And now, Tom, we are at both my favorite scene and least favorite scene. <laughs>
1: William Tell, the butterfly, command, the tomahawk, fighters kiss,
0: <laughs> the butchers and prentices, ah, yes. oh, the butchers and Performance! command performance, <laughs> command, performance. <laughs> command performance, a
1: command performance indeed. I want you to get out of here. Do you understand? And for this, I must beg the indulgence of my former assistant in matters of impalement, the butcher's original apprentice. What do you say, Jen? One more time for the sweet souvenir.
0: And this Uh is in the Chinese Opera House on Doyer Street off the Bloody Angle. Now, the Chinese Opera House. Sparrows, Chinese Pagoda. Yes, it's what they call it in the movie. Now, first of all, it looks like some sort of 1940s themed nightclub. It's like way, it's like, it's totally exaggerated. Like, no place like this has ever existed in New York. But I have a larger problem. With this scene and just generally the depiction of the Chinese in this movie is the only thing that strikes a really bad note to me. First of all, this is the 1860s. New York did not have a Chinese population at all, okay? A very, very small one. Extremely small and maybe just a few small places on Mott Street, right? So there was no, like, it could not be some elaborate... Nightclub pagoda place whatever right so then I have to think well why was it necessary to include the Chinese in this story if they weren't around during this period now first I you would think well maybe it's just to like bring in you know different kinds of characters a little diversity but also
1: maybe you know it's like today Chinatown is right down there around five points maybe it's kind of a nod a nod to
0: that. Except for the fact that there are no Chinese speaking roles, like there are no speaking roles for Chinese people in this movie, right? Except for maybe like a line or two, So so it's gratuitous. It seems it just seems like exoticism. They basically wanted to show spaces that were clean is how I am looking at it because you're in the brewery forever. So, I mean, I think it's just to like do some kind of colorful decoration and, and fresh air. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I understand that. And to be fair, I love this scene.
1: Well, this is they are celebrating the 16th anniversary of the quote Great Battle of 1846. Which is that face-off that we saw at the beginning of the film. So this is a celebration of Bill the Butcher's conquest of Amsterdam's father. By the way, we also see a bunch of women in cages... Oh,
0: yeah, that's very strange. I found it very
1: <laughs> limelight circa 1990s. You know? Except
0: I think those were go-go boys in silver pants.
1: God, but... I miss the 90s.
0: <laughs> the key context for this scene is that Bill has discovered, uh, Johnny Sirocco has told him, that Amsterdam is actually the son of the priest that he killed. So now all of a sudden, he you don't know what he's thinking, right, Bill?
1: I was so disappointed in Johnny. You know, for sort of squealing on his friend. But we should also mention that Johnny has had an infatuation for Jenny, Cameron Diaz's character, for years, right? He's been in love with her, and then all of a sudden she hooks up with, with Leo. So... So it's because of that love conflict that um, he has sort of ratted out his friend. So
0: this incredible scene where Bill is now doing some kind of knife throwing trick where Jenny Everdeen is basically against a wall as he's throwing knives. And this is something that we're, we're to presume they've done before, but he seems to be getting very, very close. In fact, he cuts her at one point.
1: Actually, it's like a little bit of vaudeville in the film, which I really appreciated. You know, it's like there's suddenly like a knife throwing act, although this one was really tense. Well, yeah, we don't know. I mean, because we now know that Bill is mad at at Amsterdam and Amsterdam is with Jenny, who has also been a love interest to Bill. In fact, she was pregnant with his baby. I mean, it's like it's a big mess. And now here we are at this anniversary and he's throwing knives at her. This is a nail biter.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, and plus, knowing you know, knowing the director here and making movies like Taxi Driver and Goodfellas, like you know where these scenes go. Oh, I thought I <laughs> thought she was going to get the. I knife. thought she was a goner. Yeah, well, someone is almost murdered in this scene because as Bill is pouring a celebratory flaming drink to mark the death of the priest, Amsterdam comes at him finally.
1: He has waited for this moment and finally throws a knife at Bill. He misses Bill, who throws back at him, landing a knife right in Amsterdam's stomach. So now we think that Amsterdam's a goner. Mm-hmm. He comes over. He could totally finish off the job. He proceeds to bloody him up in the most the most ridiculous <laughs> headbutting fashion. Oh right? yes, that's at, that's at, weird. At one moment, he's like on top of him on top of like a stage butting his head they're all so bloody he grabs a knife and he's saying who wants what you know it's like he's calling out to the crowd people are throwing in like or they're like ordering his body parts you know saying cut (laughs) out his tongue give me a give Give me me a a liver give me a liver and this is where I thought it it like veered into Sweeney Todd
0: It's so macabre. If if they'd started singing, it would not have surprised you. No, I wish it would have.
1: No, but then he says, no, but you know what? He is not even worthy of death and decides instead to brand him, to, to scar him for life by taking like a hot sword and like crossing his face, basically messing up his beautiful face.
0: For like a minute. (laughs) because this is, like, Leonardo DiCaprio, okay? Like, a pretty movie star. You barely see this. Like, I mean, in fact, like, the next few scenes, his face is turned away from the camera. And then when you finally see it again, there's, like, a kind of a light indention. It's almost like there's a lot of blush on, like, one side of the face. So somehow, somehow Amsterdam
1: survives that, and Jenny drags him off to her hiding spot to nurse him back to health, it's again in some kind of like underground catacomb, you know, someplace, candlelit hovel. Yeah. Which, you know, did not exist, but whatever. And he's done. And she's actually called in a doctor. He's being sort of like nursed back to health. And she says, you know what? I've got $215 hidden away, just enough for you and I to take the new train line out to California and start a new life in San Francisco. The Transcontinental
0: so, Railroad. Yeah, yes. Which
1: has opened in the meantime. Yeah, so there's a moment where it's like, okay, is he going to clean up his life, go with
0: Jenny, leave five points for good, and head out to California? Instead, he chooses to stay and fight. And what essentially happens in this last third of the movie is he assembles a team, essentially becomes a rival in the community against Bill. By resurrecting his father's former gang, this gang that has
1: gone basically extinct or underground. He announces the comeback, the the resurrection of the dead rabbits, by heading back into Paradise Square, limping, gimping his mm-hmm. way into Paradise Square and hanging the pelt of a dead rabbit at the sort of flagpole in the middle of
0: the square. And may I read just a segment from The Gangs of New York? Oh, a, a little do. bit of his description of the dead rabbits. Because this is reflected in something that actually happened. The dead rabbits were originally part of the roach guards organized to honor the name of a five points liquor seller. But eternal dissension developed, and at one of the gang's stormy meetings, someone threw a dead rabbit into the center of the room. One of the squabbling factions accepted it as an omen And its members withdrew, forming an independent gang and calling themselves the Dead Rabbits. So this idea of actually using a corpse of a dead rabbit is actually taken from history. Unfortunately for one of our characters, this inspires Bill to do something quite violent. And that is to take Johnny Sirocco, who had had told on Amsterdam. The uh, rat. The re- yes, Esse- former best friend essentially takes him and impales him upon the fence here in Paradise Square. And this is
1: after Leo had like figured out that it was him who ratted on him and he spares him his life. So again, Amsterdam is like showing his compassion to his friend but nonetheless, basically, Bill does him in and hangs him in the same spot
0: that Leo hung this this rabbit pill, and Leo does have to then kill him out of out of mercy
1: and so basically it's it's obvious at this point that the battle is on. Amsterdam at this point announces you know he he sort of shows reveals his logic when he says, "Look, the nativists are this gang over here, but we." We've got a growing population. I heard, Mm -hmm. he says, that there's 15,000 Irish arriving a week. Get us all together. We ain't a gang. We got an army. That, again, is underscoring how many people at this period in the 1860s were arriving.
0: Well, and reflecting the understanding that these oppressed communities, if they could just organize in an effective way, can actually make political change. And sure enough... Here comes Boss Tweed knocking at the door, who sees this as a potential to gather more power in New York. Amsterdam kind of goes along with it, but he's like, okay, that's fine, but you need to have an Irish person as an elected official in a major job here in New York City. And they kind of negotiate a little bit. And Boss Tweed agrees that for the job of sheriff, that they would run an Irishman and a a man who's been kind of a recurring character throughout the story named Monk. Monk McGinn.
1: Yeah, so now we see finally that that Tweed is recognizing the growing strength of the Dead Rabbits and of the Irish population. And he's basically turning his back on Bill the Butcher and forming this alliance. There is a very funny election day montage. Oh yes. You know, it's I a little bit it. of breath it's a breath of fresh air. There's a lot of comedy. You know, there are people who are like voting, you know, multiple times in one day. They're voting and then they're actually getting their hair cut, they're voting and then <laughs> they're, they're getting a shave. <laughs> you know, Amsterdam actually asks a guy, "Where are you going?" And the guy says, "I already voted twice." And Amsterdam says, "Twice? You call that doing your civic duty?" <laughs> Come with me.
0: And then I think Monk actually wins the election for sheriff by, like, more votes than there are people.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, they they approach Boss Tweed and say, we've got a problem. Monk's already won by 3,000 more votes than there are voters. But it's fun. The soundtrack is fun. You know, the sepia tone briefly, like, diminishes a bit. We, We breathe a little... There's a little comedy in the air as everybody is actively involved in like
0: getting out the yes. boat. Yes. Now unfortunately it takes a dark turn again because now Monk is getting a shave, you know, he's got his new duties to attend to when he receives a pig's head. Of course the pig's head is from Bill. It's like a calling card. It's very godfatherish a little bit here. Mm-hmm. And then confronts Bill, goes out and they're on this like this gigantic, like, boulder or rock or something that's in the middle of of the area.
1: Which is pretty cool. I mean, you do see, like, the different levels. They haven't graded everything. They haven't brought it to the same level. So, yeah, you see kind of, like, hills that are out of grade with the rest of the streets around it. And the barbershop is way
0: up there on election night. He invites Bill up to the barbershop so they can have an actual civilized conversation. So he turns his back to go into the barbershop. And Bill stabs him in the back well throws yeah throws his butcher knife into the back his back and then kills him and tweed gets briefed on this and
1: thinks oh my god you you killed an elected official this is not going to be good and the next scene is the funeral procession the his whole you know the hearse the horse drawn hearse all oh, of yeah, the mourners it, behind them it's beautifully
0: done actually yeah
1: all of five points is they're watching and respecting. bill is standing in front of his butcher shop with kind of a smart aleck look on his face and spits as the coffin goes by and Amsterdam looks at him and says, all right, I guess it's on. We have to, we have to settle this.
0: So they're going to have a huge rematch similar to what we saw, this massive battle here in five points. It's like tensions are boiling on this sort of small scale, just as they're boiling over on the large scale here. In New York City because the day of the draft arrives
1: and yeah it's it 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 is sort of interesting how the scope of the movie now opens up so we pull back from just you know this sort of gang warfare and we we pull back to the city and the city's poor and the pent-up frustrations within that community regarding the draft and the fact that they are being subjected to this draft where those with $300 can buy their way out. So basically, the city's elite, who we cut to at some point, they're either having breakfast, you know, in this huge spread, or they're, like, in in this very scene, we see them playing billiards. We see skirmerhorn and we see Horace mm-hmm. Greeley, and Boss Tweed is right there with them, talking about the tensions in the city. We see that
0: the, the poor have had enough. And as the, the draft lottery begins, the city pretty much ignites in fact it's it's firemen who actually which is actually what happened in real life firemen smash the draft office the city basically collapses into chaos and it's actually the next day where all of the massive violence happens
1: the horns are in fact sitting down to breakfast a mob smashes their way in and then there's a scene with with the police wire they're tapping the news to each other Updates from around the city. The mob is striking at 7th Avenue and 27th Street. All the stores are closing on 8th Avenue for fear of the mob that's on 17th Street. They're flashing addresses on the sc- on the screen. You know, robbers are attacking the African-American boarding houses. The, and the, the orphanages, yes. And orphanages. At 27th and 7th, there's a big mob. We're inside the police headquarters on Mulberry Street. There's a mob at 21st and 2nd. So we're really like outside. Finally, uh, yes. Place, which is nice. We see mansions burning at Lexington and 46th mm-hmm. Street,
0: which is accurate. Uh, Barnum's what, museum is on fire. Which is not accurate. <laughs> Actually, the weird thing about that is, uh, by the way, anything Barnum in this is far more accurate than anything that was in The Greatest Showman. But I digress. In this case. <laughs> we will not be doing that. <laughs> Because there's, there's no history on it whatsoever. It is true that Barnum's actually was a focus in 1864 when Confederates actually came and tried to burn the city. That was one of the places. And in fact, the next year, 1865, is when the museum actually burns down. But I don't believe it was seriously affected by the draft riots. But it is a good enough excuse so that you can have an elephant running around lower Manhattan because, of course, the animals have escaped. So I kind of I'm OK with this change of history. Yeah, I kind of like the <laughs> elephants
1: sort of cameo. here at the yeah. end of Meanwhile, then we're flashing back to the Five Points gangs. They're meeting in the streets. We're following them as they're getting closer to each other. They're about you know to each other in the streets they just cleared one corner on one side and one's coming around the other corner and they're 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 looking at each other in the eyes as they hear a noise and they see a stampeding elephant you know a block <laughs> yeah, away uh-huh. on the other side of paradise square when all of a sudden elsewhere in the city regiments of soldiers start firing on the mobs in the streets and then the whole thing turns into a huge, brawling mess.
0: And by the way, this reminded... There was something about this that reminded me a little bit more of the Astor Place riots. Mm. The idea of militia firing into people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it was... I feel like it was a nod to another moment in history, to be honest. But the... the And and did
1: they, I will ask you, did militia fire into New Yorkers, mobs of New Yorkers on the street? uh, They did, yes. So that part's true. What happens here in Gangs of New York that is not true is that then military vessels then fire cannons and cannonballs
0: from, from the docks into five points. Yes, that has not happened in New York since 1776. <laughs> so that is definitely a fiction But yeah, so that's just just used to motivate and to kind of like heighten the battle that we're just seeing. And I would even say, to be kind of honest, in terms of the screenplay here, it almost makes their battle seem less important.
1: You know, it's like one of these... Not to drop one of those like Greek theater terms on deus you, Deus Ex Machina De- is Deus Ex Machina, yeah. The, this sort of like wrath of God comes down and just sort of, or the the monster that breathes fire and just kind of like burns mm-hmm. everything up. It's this otherworldly thing that happens. Yes. You're, you're watching their battle, and then all of a sudden it's just like fiery hellscape around them, mm-hmm. you know, comes <laughs> to fruition. It becomes apocalyptic, mm-hmm. you, you, and they seem so small all of a sudden. These two men. Actually, it's like they become covered in ash and fire and they suddenly become these really small players in this much bigger war.
0: And it is here at this moment till the very end of the film uh, that you have to remember that this came out in 2002 and being released in a city that was still struggling with September 11th. So... You know those kinds of things. I think would have been had they just released it like a you know a month after afterwards. It, it that would have just been unbelievably scarring. So what essentially happens is just in this chaos of haze and fog, Amsterdam does in fact stab and eventually kills Bill the Butcher, who is already sort of mortally wounded. Oh, that's true. Right by just other shrapnel.
1: Yeah, he pulls some. God awful thing out of his stomach. And Amsterdam kind of crawls over and then stabs him. has one last
0: stab. And then Jenny Everdeen, who was trying to escape new york and and she got caught up in the in the riots, but then she survived, does find Amsterdam. And we do realize that he is alive. We have lost several supporting players during this like last 20 minutes, though. It is a little bit like the Titanic.
1: <laughs> and then they line up all these bodies and they put candles. He explains that they put candles on the bodies so that their friends and loved ones can find them and identify them at night. But they're all lined up regardless of their affiliation with whatever yeah. gangs. They suddenly lose their gang affiliation as they all just become... Dead New, men.
0: Dead New Yorkers.
1: And at the very end, to even underscore that, we see Bill the Butcher's grave, which has been placed directly next to mm-hmm. Priest Valens. Yes. And we see Amsterdam actually bearing the the, the knife or the... Yeah, the switchblade. The, the, the switchblade the switch right there as a final tribute to to Bill the Butcher and to his father in a way two men who were arch rivals but also had this kind of respect for yeah, each other yeah there was like
0: a code an honor code of some kind
1: and there we see their their graves next to each other on the brooklyn queens side Somewhere, of the river yeah. With his view onto Brooklyn Bridge, so we've now like we we jump forward in time by a few decades. Well, yeah, it does a little fade, it, right? It, yes. A dissolve. It keeps dissolving forward, and and you kind of jump through generations as Woolworth s- Building and all these skyscrapers, pop early skyscrapers, yeah, yeah. and then bigger skyscrapers, and then finally, quote unquote, today, which includes. An image of the twin towers
0: rising above uh, above all of it, and that was a conscious choice. I mean, they you know they could have like what would you do in that situation? Would you cut that last final scene, or would you leave it? So it's very powerful. And then you know then you hear Bono (laughs) like chiming in with his song "The Hands That Built America," which was nominated for an Academy Award and lost to Eminem for "Lose Yourself" from the movie Eight Mile. A little trivia. Mm. Finally, I just needed to add that Bill the Butcher, Paul, not William Cutting. So William Cutting died in this manner during the draft riots. Okay, this fictional character. And how did Bill the Butcher die? He actually died back in 1855, and he was shot to death by another Bowery boy, actually. So he was not... Yeah, he would not even have been around during this time anyway. If this has intrigued
1: you... We hope that you will at least check out the movie Gangs of New York or pick up the
0: book Gangs of New York by Herbert Asbury. Thank you very much for joining us on this uh, romp through Gangs of New York and also for supporting us on Patreon.
1: It really is because of your support that we are able to spend. All of our time producing the Bowery Boys. When we're not watching these great movies, we're actually studying up on the next episode. So thank you so much for letting us do what we do. Have a great New York week. And we'll see you at the movies.